You're listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. For more information about our church, visit our website at redrocksbaptist.org or follow us on Instagram at Red Rocks Baptist. I enjoy traveling and even road tripping, and I've done this on several occasions, but I have to say I despise driving through the night. Now, some of you are like, no, 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 get me on the road at 11 p.m., and, and it's, it's sailing for me. But I hate driving through the night. I'd rather be sleeping in the middle of the night, not driving through Kansas in some highway, okay? And I've done this several times. I think the last time we did it, I said, I would be happy if I never drove through the night again in my life. But one time, as, as I was coming home from college, I was with my sister and another friend of ours. We were driving from South Carolina to, to New Hampshire. It's a 16-hour drive. And we decided that it would be best if I took the night shift so the other two could sleep and then they could take over in the morning. And I thought, well, I'm the oldest, I'm the, I'm the man, I should, I should do that. You know, I'm the protector here. So I took like the 11 p.m. shift to like 6 a.m. And I came prepared. And back in those days for college, that was not getting a triple shot espresso. It was actually a two liter Mountain Dew. Again, uh, uh, when I became a man, I put away childish things. But I had the two liter, I was ready to go, and I had this routine where I could just take a few gulps at a time, and I thought, this is just so much caffeine content, I'm going to hate myself the next day, but I'll be wide awake, it'll work perfectly. Well, the only thing it did was force me to pull off the road every 45 minutes (laughs) to use the restroom. And then in between those pull-offs, I was trying to stay awake. It didn't work. And, And... I remember the minutes just going by and you're kind of dozing and trying to pull yourself out and you're pulling yourself out and you think, all right, it's got to be another 30 minutes. It's been three. And it felt like the night would just never end. And I, I'm here, so obviously I made it. Uh, and finally got to about 7 a.m. And the next thing I remember was pulling back in the driveway. It felt like the night was eternal. And when we face life's brokenness, it feels like the dark will never end. It just feels like the pit that we're sitting in never has a way out. The doctors can't figure out what's wrong with your body and you're still in pain. The waves of grief continue to pound your heart day after day. The pressure of barely scraping by financially has no end in sight. The treatments have been so hard and you're only a quarter of the way through. The realization that the dream that you had is not going to happen. And the crashing of that dream sends you into a funk. The family member who cut you off years ago still refuses to have any sort of contact with you. And on top of it, as if these things weren't bad enough, it seems that the unbelievers around us have it easy. Not a care in the world. Enjoying their friends and their money and their hobbies. And it's frustrating and it, it feels unfair It feels unjust. When we're burdened with life's brokenness, injustice, loss, grief, suffering, hardship, whatever you you put in that blank, when we're burdened with life's brokenness, what will keep our faith steady? That's the question several people in the Bible have wrestled with. And that's the question Habakkuk is wrestling with. As I mentioned a few moments ago, he has this burden of of how long are you going to go, Lord, before you deal with the problem? And God says, I'm going to deal with the problem. 
I'm going to send a more wicked nation to judge a more righteous one. And, and Habakkuk says, well, that solves one problem, but, but creates an even bigger one. And Lord, you're holy and you're sovereign and you're righteous, so what are you doing? And God comes to him and says that the answer to his questions won't come for a while. Chapter 2, verse 2, uh, verse 3. In the end, it will speak. It will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it. It'll surely come. The answer to your problems will come, but not right away. And in the meantime, then, God says, Habakkuk, you have a choice. You can either be arrogant and proud and throw me off, or you can humbly live by faith. You can wait and rest for my answer. In our darkness, we need to live by faith also. But the question is, what will keep our faith steady? What will sustain us through those wee hours of the morning when it feels like the dawn will never break? It's the same thing that kept Habakkuk's faith steady. And we see that in God's answer to Habakkuk in verses 5 through 20 of chapter 2. And these verses complete the second part of the dialogue between Habakkuk and the Lord. This is the answer to, to his question. And we'll see that there are three declarations that God makes. The first one is in verse 5. Indeed, God says, because he, talking about the ungodly, the proud person, transgresses by wine, he is a proud man. He does not stay at home because he enlarges his desire as hell. And he is like death and cannot be satisfied. He gathers to himself all nations and heaps up for himself all peoples. The first declaration that God says is that he will abase, abase the proud. God says, I will abase the proud. And this is the introduction to the this, to this section that follows. And we'll see in a moment that this is a doom and gloom section. When people think about Old Testament prophets, this is the type of stuff that they're going to think about. But the introduction is important because not only does it give the basis for God's judgments, it actually tells us the root problem that the Babylonians had. And it was pride. The root issue is their pride. Their pride drives their ambition and discontent. Their discontentment. They thirst for more. They're like death that is never satisfied. So they go out conquering and trying to capture more nations. And pride is condemned in the scriptures from beginning to end. It is the twisted root of many sins because pride is essentially lifting self up and exalting self above others and even into the place of God, putting the person who's proud and setting them up as a rival to God. Is it no wonder then that God says he will abase the proud? Because he suffers no rivals, he's a jealous God. And these Babylonians were proud thinking that they were in the place of God, thinking that there was no accountability and they could do whatever they felt like doing. Pride, though, as Proverbs famously says, leads to destruction. And so God's second answer is also very simple. I will judge the wicked. And Habakkuk now is, is starting to see a little bit more of the picture. It's not simply that God is going to permit this incident to happen now, but God does have a plan for the wicked people to follow. The evidence of the Babylonian pride is seen through five woes in this section, W-O-E-S. And they're arranged in three verses each. We'll, we'll look at them here in a moment. And these are God's 
pronouncements of judgment on the Babylonians. But verse 6a, it's on the screen, will not all these take up a proverb against him and a taunting riddle against him and say, and then it goes into it, but the these here, will not all these, it's talking about the nations that Babylon has conquered. The nations that they have afflicted will rise up and taunt them. There's a reversal here because God is abasing the proud. Now, as we go through this passage, there are some really interesting metaphors and and challenging things, and I've studied it in several different translations. I'm actually going to put the NIV, the New International Version, on the screen because of its simplicity to read. Okay? And it's a word for word translation, and it's got a lower reading level, so it helps us to understand. And then when we get to the next point, we'll switch back to the New King James. There are five woes. The first one is woe to the violent extortioner. Let's read the text. Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your creditors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their prey. Because you have plundered many nations, the peoples who are left will plunder you. For you have shed human blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. This again is referring to the Babylonians. They extorted other nations. And the image here is that they're like a a borrower coming for a loan. But it's not, hey, can you please give me this, this line of credit? They're coming with their swords saying, give it to me. And in verses 7 and 8, God reverses the metaphor. One day, these creditors, the ones that forcibly had to give Babylon what they wanted, they will call in their debts, and the Babylonians will lose everything. The tables will turn. At the end of verse 8, explains why this is going to happen. Because the Babylonians have shed blood. They've destroyed cities. They're murderers. And that, that reason will show up several times because they've destroyed lands or or shed blood. God says, woe to the violent extortioner. Verses 9 through 11, woe to the shameless plunderer. Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. So there's a, there's a picture here where in verse 9 it says that he's built his house and set it as, as a nest on high. You think of like an eagle who sets her nest way up so that no one can touch it. It's an image of safety and security. And the Babylonians have done this. They've taken other things from other nations and tried to protect themselves. But in doing this, Though they've plotted the ruin of other people, they've shamed themselves and led to their own destruction. It's as if the beams and the timbers that they've put into their home are speaking as a witness against them. Verse 11. Woe to the shameless plunderer. 12 through 14. Woe to the cruel tyrant. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed. There it is again. And establishes a town by injustice. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled for the, with the knowledge of the Lord, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. If you've done any sort of reading about ancient Babylon, you're probably familiar that it was a, 
architectural city. The famous hanging gardens of Babylon were there, supposedly. There's some debate as to whether or not they were even real. But Babylon was known for its buildings and architecture. And, and how did they get all that? How did they build it? Verse 12 says, they built it with bloodshed on the backs of subjugated nations. And their injustice and their cruelty was for nothing because their greatness was fleeting. The nations, verse 13, exhausted themselves in vain. Their city was destroyed, actually relatively fairly quickly in world history terms. And then verse 14 gives kind of an unexpected change because it's not talking about Babylon anymore. It's talking about the glory of the Lord. And there's a contrast in this immediate context that though the nations may rage and they would work so hard to make their fame last forever, there's only one kingdom that truly lasts forever. It's God's kingdom. And that's a huge piece of the puzzle that we'll see in a few moments, verse 14. Fourth, woe to the debauched exploiter, verses 15 through 17. Woe to him, God says, who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin till they're drunk so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it's your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you, and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and your destruction of animals will terrify you, for you've shed human blood. You've destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. And this describes the debauchery, just the vileness of Babylon. It's like they forced others to be drunk so they could expose them and mock them and take advantage of them. Now, God says it's their turn to drink and be laid bare. And instead of having glory as their clothing, disgrace will be their covering. In verse 17, repeats the, again, repeats the charge that they shed blood, even destroying nature and animals senselessly. Verses, 15, verses 18 through 20 gives the last of these woes. Woe to the foolish idolater. And this one doesn't begin with the word woe. There's a setup here in verse 18. Of what value is an idol carved by craftsmen or an image that teaches lies? For the one who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life. Or to a lifeless stone, wake up. Can it, the idol, give guidance? It's covered with gold and silver. There's no breath in it. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. And this is supposed to be a little humorous. And God does this in other passages like Isaiah 45 and 46, where an idolater is, is foolish. They're so debased in their thinking that they chop down a, a, a timber, they cut half of it and use it for a fire to keep themselves warm. The other half they carve into an idol and they fall down and worship it. That's the folly of pursuing worship of some created thing. And though we don't, I don't think, go into the woods and, and pull out a rock and bow down to it or take a tree and chop it down, we still do the same thing in our hearts. We worship paper currency that really means nothing. We worship this magic box we call a screen. We worship this idea of image or prestige. It has no life. 
it gives us nothing. And there's a contrast here between the Babylon idolatry and the Lord God. In contrast to the lifeless idols that they're worshiping, where is God? He's sitting on his throne. He's in his temple. He's still in control. And this idolatry is really the root sin that they chose to worship something other than the true and living God. Now, this judgment that we've just kind of worked through fairly quickly, this may seem obscure to us today. I don't think any of us are going to go back to these verses tomorrow for our devotional reading. It's not as applicable to us. But think about being in Habakkuk's shoes for a minute. This was a massive encouragement to him because it helped him understand a little bit of what God was doing. Even though God was going to use proud Babylon to chasten his people, God wasn't going to let their sins go unpunished either. Eventually, their sins would be chastened. Their sins would be judged. And that leads us to a principle. Though God sovereignly controlled the Babylonians, he still held them responsible for their actions. And that's the way God works in the world. And and that draws attention to one of the timeless, age-old tensions between God's sovereignty and man's free will. The Bible teaches that God is in control. And the Bible also teaches that human beings are responsible for their actions, and both are true at the same time. How those work together, I can't tell you. The Bible doesn't explain it. It simply teaches it. And And the greatest example of this is what happened at the cross of Jesus. It seems like every great example comes back to the cross. But Peter, in his Pentecost sermon in Acts 2.23, said this, Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and put to death. So on the one hand, God determined that Jesus would die for our sins. But on the other hand, these lawless men were responsible for their actions and their unjust condemnation of the righteous one. So this this gives us one answer to Habakkuk's dilemma. Remember his dilemma, how can a holy God permit evil? Well, God doesn't condone evil, though he is wise and powerful enough to use it to further his purposes. He never condones it. And he always makes it right. He always judges it. We've seen then two declarations of God to Habakkuk. Verse 20 contains the third. And verse 20 says, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let the earth keep silence before him. And this verse kind of has a dual function. It's part of that fifth woe in verses 18 through 20. But it's also a standalone statement where God is making very clear to Habakkuk and to the world around him, I am still on the throne. I'm still here. I'm still alive. And nothing takes place without my permission. Babylon may seem indestructible, but only God will last forever. Therefore, he says, let the earth keep silence before me. Be quiet. As Job said, I will lay my hand on my mouth. Well, why keep silent? Why submit to this mighty God? 
Because he's in control. Because all of human history that seems like it's stretching on and on from our perspective, he has in the palm of his hands. So this brings us back to the question I raised earlier. When confronted, when burdened with life's brokenness, what will keep our faith steady? God's answer in this passage is this. Take the long view of history. Take the long view of history. It's the same answer that Asaph the psalmist came to in Psalm 73 and 77. Trusting God, living by faith, that requires us to do something. It requires us to believe that what we see is not all that there is. It requires us to say there's something more going to take place. It requires us to take the long view of history, which is the short view of eternity. We live in a broken world, no doubt, full of suffering, full of hardship, full of grief. In the darkness we feel is long. Because for right now it is. And if we kind of whistle in the dark and pretend like it's not that bad, then we're kind of denying what reality is. It is hard. It is long. But that's why we need an eternal perspective. That's why we need God's view of it. Because compared to eternity, the truth is this life is so short. And what gives us that grace to view the long haul it's, it's faith. We need to believe in faith that the night will end and the eternal morning will eventually come. So as we look back at this passage, there are three truths to cling to in the night that teach us to take the long view of history, that bolster, that sustain our faith. So how do we take the long view of history? Number one, we have to remember God rules over all the earth. God rules over all the earth. This is where the passage ended. This is what what I like to refer to as stabilizing truths, and that's not original to me. But when you're in a hard place, you've got to find a couple of truths that you can just cling to and believe when everything else is swirling around you. This is one of those things. God rules over all the earth, and the Bible is so clear. He will always rule over all the earth. There is never a moment that he is not going to rule or has ruled. You know, this week, uh, you may be familiar with the abdication of a monarch in Denmark. I didn't know that Denmark even still had a king. And in this case, it was a queen. (laughs) But Denmark's queen, Margaret, Margrethe, however you pronounce the Denmark version of Margaret, she abdicated. In fact, just a few weeks ago on December 31st, she indicated she would do this. And it kind of caught everybody by surprise. The news article said that the prime minister didn't know until a couple of hours before she made the announcement. Her son, who took over, Frederick X, found out, I think, a couple days before that. As an aside, imagine that being your Christmas gift. Oh, by the way, you're going to be king in a month. Okay. She abdicated. She was older. She's in her 80s. She was of weak health. And so she thought it was the time to pass on the crown to her son. And that happened this week. God will never abdicate. He never grows old. He never needs to pass off his reign to someone else. He is able to direct the course of history as he chooses. And as he directs the course of history, there's nothing that happens without his permission. Now, we have illustrations of authoritarian regimes over in China or North Korea, for instance, where they try 
to set up millions of security cameras and, and, and incentivize people to obey the government. That's the wrong idea of the type of God that our God is. He's not a nervous, fear-based dictator who has to control his subjects with, with every turn because he's not fulfilled if not. No, he's in control and he's good. And he is so strong and wise and his plan will take place so that he can even use the evil intentions of man to accomplish his plan. Take the long view of history. God rules over all the earth. But second, what a comfort it is to know that God will act justly to punish all sin. He will do it. He will abase the proud. He will punish sin because he is just. Sometimes God acts on justice immediately. Sometimes it, it takes a little while. And sometimes, and this is hard, sometimes justice is not served in this life. There are many examples in history where people have committed vile, heinous, evil acts and gotten away with it in this life. But we can be certain, in the end, there will be a great white throne and our just judge will sit on it and he will make it right. Sin is always punished eventually. It has consequences. You know, in your school days, or those of you in high school, may remember Isaac Newton's third law of motion. Should have given a quiz on this, right? Isaac Newton's third law of motion. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. Exactly. And we could tweak that a little bit to make this a law about sin. For every human sin, there is an equal and opposite punishment from God. For every sin. For every sin. That's the reality of sin. Every sin will be punished. And though no other human being may know about the sin in our hearts, God knows, because all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him with whom we must give an account. This is bad news for every sinner. And the Bible is also very clear. Every person has sinned. There is none who does good. No, not one. So if, if this is all bad news and judgment, then how is this part of the comfort? That's where the gospel enters. Because the good news of the gospel is that your sins can be forgiven in the name of Jesus. That the justice of God, the wrath of God, does not have to be poured out on you because it was poured out on him on the cross. When Jesus died 2,000 years ago and shed his blood, the wrath of God was poured out on him. God's justice was completely satisfied in that moment. The debt was paid. And the Bible calls us then to receive forgiveness of sins through faith and repentance. To believe that Jesus could, can and does stand in your place. To turn from all else and cling only to him. And when we receive Christ by faith, you are justified. We're going to see this in Galatians in a few weeks. You are declared to be righteous. And there is no sin charged to your account. And you know what the opposite of justification is? Condemnation. And Romans 8.1 gives one of the great gospel declarations. For those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. You no longer face God's judgment when you are part of his family. So, God's justice then, instead of becoming the thing that you dread more than anything, 
is actually the thing that gives you comfort. Because all the pains and the hurts and the wrongs that you absorb in following your Savior will be made right. But when will that happen? It's a good question. Doesn't it feel like it's going to take so long? Does it feel a little slow? I wish God's justice would come a little quicker. I wish, it would, I wish Jesus would come back. Put all this to bed. Be done with it. Well, verse 14 that we saw a few moments ago, verse 14 gives us a glimpse into the future when God's justice will be displayed and all wrongs will be made right. What will happen? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is talking about Christ's kingdom being established. This is a promise, a guarantee of what will take place in the future. You say, but Jesus isn't mentioned here. Well, there's a cross-reference that is so important for us. Isaiah 11, verse 9 says this, For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. And it's a wonderful picture, just like the ocean waters roll and and they move and they cover the face of the earth so the knowledge of God, the knowledge of Christ will be from beginning to end in the earth. It'll be from the North Pole to the South Pole. It'll be East and West, both continents or both hemispheres, all continents. Isaiah 11 then gives us a complete picture because the very next verse says how this will happen. In that day, Isaiah 11.10, in that day, There will be a root of Jesse who will stand as a banner to the people. For the Gentiles shall seek him and his resting place shall be glorious. Romans 15 says that this banner, this one that is the root of Jesse, is none other than Jesus Christ. History is moving toward a determined and definite end. Christ's kingdom will rule over all. You know, our secular neighbors and friends in our, in our media, says that human history is on an inevitable march toward progress. And they define progress as social liberation and the freedom of ideas and, and whatever else they say. Well, we agree that human history is headed for a definite conclusion, but it's not the same conclusion. Because scripture tells us that history is headed for the glorious kingdom of God where all the earth shall know Jesus. The root of Jesse will take root in Jerusalem and he will rule over the earth for a thousand years. And at the end of a thousand years, all of his enemies will be destroyed. Death will be defeated. The kingdom will come in and eternity begins. All peoples will flock to him. As the new covenant blessings say, no one will have to teach his neighbor, know the Lord, because they will all know him from the least to the greatest. This will be the end of history. And when it comes, the tension of living in an unjust world will cease when Jesus establishes this eternal kingdom. Luke 1, 33, the, the angel Gabriel said to Mary, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. This is not too good to be true. It is true. 
The temporary night will end with the eternal morning when the sun rises and takes his place on the throne. Jesus wins. The end is already written. If you want to spoil it, read Revelation. Jesus returns. Sin is destroyed. Death is defeated. Tears are wiped away. And eternal harmony and peace and shalom are there. All will be healed. We will never live again with the weight of brokenness. One commentator said this about the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is a book for all faithful people of whatever era who find themselves living in the meantime, in the time between the revelation of the promises of God and the fulfillment of these promises. As such, Habakkuk is a book from from faith for faith. My brothers and sisters, take the long view of history. This is the only way to keep our faith steady. Because the dark may last a little while longer. It's hard in this life. It is broken. Taking the long view doesn't shorten the night. I'll add that. Doesn't mean that, oh, if you can just have the right mindset, then all the problems go away. No, the the dark will last for a while. But taking the long view gives us hope. It gives us hope to persevere until morning. And when it feels like like dawn will never break, we remember this is our Father's world. He's the one in his holy temple. One day soon, Jesus will establish his kingdom and make all things new. And that's what we long for. Father, we come to you as weary people. And certainly there are some here that are are not in a trial or, or in suffering right now and We're thankful for that. Others that have very happy circumstances on the horizon in front of them, we're we're, we're thrilled with them. We rejoice with them who rejoice. But if we live long enough in this life, we are confronted with the shards of brokenness. And it's something that our Savior was not immune, immune to. He, too, is a man of suffering, well acquainted with grief. He knows what we feel. And he's promised to return And it's that promise of his return and his promise of this kingdom that will sustain us through the darkness of night as the days and the years turn slowly, the suffering perhaps rises and falls. There is one thing constant, and that is our Jesus. And so we come to you with encouragement, with strength, for his name's sake. Amen. Thanks for listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. If you enjoyed this content, please consider sharing it with others. Our mission at Red Rocks Baptist Church is to know Christ and to make Him known. May God bless you as you follow Him.